Today is April 11th, 2022. Happy Monday! This is Chu Yi Yang, the show's producer, and you're listening to the Happy Market Research Podcast. We have a very special guest today, but before we get to that, here is a word from our sponsors. Support for the Happy Market Research Podcast and the following message comes from Michigan State's Marketing Research Program and WX. The Michigan State University's Master of Science in Marketing Research Program delivers the number one ranked insights and analytics degree in three formats, full-time on campus, full-time online, and part-time online. New for 2022, if you can't commit to their full degree program, simply begin with one of their three course certifications, Insights Design or Insights Analysis. In addition to the certification, all the courses you complete will build towards your graduation. If you're looking to achieve your full potential, check out MSNMU's program at broad.msu.edu slash marketing. Again, broad.msu.edu slash marketing. UBUX is a research operations platform for private panel management, qualitative automation, including video audition questions, and surveys. For a limited time, user seats are free. If you'd like to learn more or create your own account, visit hubux.com. This is episode 518, and according to Spotify, As It Was by Hair Styles is currently the number one track with more than 78 million streams. This song was released earlier this month, and according to Spotify, As It Was was the most streamed song in the U.S. in one single day, with 8.3 million streams. Take a listen. Come on, Harry, we want to say goodnight to you. Hey, everybody. You're listening to the Happy Market Research Podcast. My guest is Mark Sloby, partner and co-founder of Lighthouse Consulting. Mark and I have been in the industry for quite a while, but recently had a conversation. It centered around data quality. I'm like, I have got to get your point of view on the podcast. So that really became the impetus. Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Let's start with some context. Tell us about your parents and how they inform what you do today. Sure. So I'm from the Netherlands and my dad worked for Honda in the Netherlands, where he was probably the equivalent of a VP running a motorcycles department for Honda in the Netherlands. as part of the European management team. And my mom was a nurse and I was very happy that I think I must have been around 17 or so when he wanted my help on actually on a bit of research. And I only realized that after you asked me the question. Because they were about to launch an electric bike, uh, which is way ahead of their time, because these things, especially in the Netherlands, are very popular right now, but not so much in the mid-90s. So there I was with pen and paper asking people who were interested in a bike and asking them questions. I would not say that at that moment I decided to become a market research professional at all, 
like as many of us, I just rolled into the industry. But my dad's work had an impact on how I do things today. One thing that I always remember, he had the opportunity to move to Reading, and we would have moved with the whole family, of course. And I thought that was going to be a great adventure. But it was in the middle of school year, and he didn't want to upset us by moving to a different country and break us away from our known environment. But for me, that was actually a disappointment. So I think by then I really set my mind on moving abroad, which I finally was able to do 17 years later after that decision. And the other thing that was beautiful to see was how my dad, I saw how his team respected him. And I also saw how he managed his team. And I think what I got both from them is that you look after your people and you care for them and you show empathy. And empathy is still a very, very, very important part of how I work with people and manage people. Was it Reading, California? No, Reading, London, just oh. outside of London. Got it. I didn't, a... I didn't know I was a Reading, California. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, no way. It's actually kind of close to me. That would have been hilarious. <laughs> All right. Let's talk about data quality. Tell me about what do you see as some of the core issues around data quality today? And by data quality, I mean participant sample quality. Yeah, absolutely. I understand. Everybody sees that data quality is an increasing problem, literally in percentages of responses that are being thrown away. I think there is bad quality because there are survey bots and survey farms and what have you. There are a lot of companies or there are some companies that are trying to prevent from those things, those robots to come in. Don't really want to talk about that. I think Bad quality data has also other reasons, and that is mostly about a bad experience. I mean, there are always people who are just answer surveys to try to get a dollar here or there, but that should be a relatively small percentage. I think the problem is that surveys in general are bad. People have a bad experience, and their time is is like when they started in, in early, early 2000s, it was a great way for people to earn an additional incentives. And I think people were much more engaged and they, there was not a lot of other distraction where people would be, where people would be spending their time. Right now, there are so many applications, so many things to do on your mobile phone or behind your laptop. It's not worth their time anymore. And even more so, I think the value proposition is bad and the experience is bad. It really, if you are serious, person really trying to answer a survey truthfully, you're being sent from one platform to the other, to the other, to the other, answering the same question sometimes three times in a row for the same kind of survey flow, because you're being sent from A to B to C, and then you're being screened out. If you're not being screened out, you end up in very long surveys. Surveys are still not mobile friendly, and I'm not saying anything new here, but it's just surprising and shocking to me while the demand for people taking surveys has, has increased so much and the willingness and the ability for people to take surveys has just gone worse. And there's less and less people who want to do this because it's simply a bad experience. So there's two things, right? That, oh gosh, maybe there's three things that you're unpacking there. The first of it is actually the survey itself. I was just speaking with uh, one of the directors of insights at Adobe yesterday in San Jose about the way that we write surveys is very 1995 still, right? Yeah. So we treat a survey question 
like it's this deep dive scientific exactly scientific, as opposed to it being more conversational which is from his point of view and mine as well much more in line with being able to get a real answer and one of the things that i think is really interesting on that is like people don't read we've the social sphere has trained us where we spend five plus hours a day is trained us. If you're uninterested, swipe, right? Yep. If you are interested, then you can do a deep dive and thinking about like the meme frameworks and all those kinds of things. None of them are framed in a, you know, 50 word question. No, that's exactly all. Oh, there's an interesting dynamic happening in the research industry. I think the researchers are very afraid of changing methodologies changing whatever it is, changing a question in a, in a tracker, moving providers. And I fully understand all those, that fear because anything changed and you get a change in the results. What is the reason? At the same time, technology and our behavior and how, and how we in, interact with information is evolving way faster than the insights industry is evolving. So there's a, there's a weird dynamic going on between the two. There are lots of opportunities, lots of technological solutions to turn surveys into a better experience, and yet they are not being fully utilized. And yeah, we're still writing surveys with the pen and paper in mind. Right. Very academic. The other thing that I, I see brands are trying to get closer to their use, their buyers, it is more open, it is more conversational, and we see an increase in, in people giving their opinions through videos. That is a start, although I think still think it's a little bit of a, like a one-way. But to gather information, if you must, then we should be welcoming tools that make this more fun, more conversational, more human. And you are seeing that. You are seeing tools, survey tools that are coming into the market now, although I would say they're more niche in nature as opposed to like, you know, Qualtrics's or -hmm. SurveyMonkey's that are gamifying the survey experience. I think about like Fast Focus, which is relatively new platform that is kind of like doing a, it's, well, it is doing a swipe approach, which mirrors more of like a max diff. Mm -hmm. Gamification is useful, but I still think that, well, that makes the experience a little bit better, a little bit more natural to how we are interacting with, with other things. Yeah. Is someone doing it well? I could be, but I haven't seen it yet. I, I think there's also two other parts. So a lot of questions are self-reported questions, like trying to memorize if you shopped at a grocery store last week and what, what did you buy? Right. There's a lot of questions that we still ask that we kind of know or that we could know from somebody's activity on their, uh, on their mobile device if we have an honest and open value proposition for sharing that data. And that eliminates a lot of the questions that are being repeatedly asked and give you the real truth of what somebody has been doing rather than asking them to memorize how many cartons of milk they bought last week and what brand. I don't remember. Right. Yeah, of course not. And no one does, right? I mean, that's the reality. It's just a, and we're getting worse and worse at guessing as, as attention spans are, are decreasing. And it is very laborious on participants, especially if they're coming to your survey on the mark in a marketplace. Not that I, you know, I'm not like trying to shit on the marketplaces, but you know, that experience, if you get termed out as a participant, then you go on to the, another, another opportunity. 
but a lot of times, you know, you're asked the same questions that you just answered, yep. which probably really starts impacting the actual LOI of your survey. Yeah, and I think one thing that particularly in the marketplace could help improve the experience if these players get together and agree on a, a set of questions, I don't know, limited to whatever, 20, and share that data between them, then it also makes it easier to build APIs because you don't need to build one API for one partner and one API for a client, but you will have a single API that can connect everybody together. That will be a step towards further democratization of, of data and of access to people. Yeah, that would be a big win. Yeah, I would, lo- I, would love to, I would love to see that first before another merger or acquisition. <laughs> I think there's, uh, given all the M&A that's happened inside of the space, that might just be get all rolled up into one survey platform anyway. <laughs> so, who knows? Yeah, that, and that may happen eventually, but there are lots of people. I mean, we're all people, we're all humans. We all love to share our opinions. Uh, so I think there's no lack of people still willing to do this, but the experience has just got to improve. Yeah. So the way the questions are written, the way that we treat participants if they come through the marketplace is driving uh, bad actors into the space and good good participants out of the space. How are you seeing incentives playing a role, if at all? Yeah, no, yeah that really plays into a value proposition. I think incentives will always play a role. What we really need to figure out is what motivates people to answer questions and what made, what motivates people to be part of a panel, what motivates them to not be part of a panel, because those are also people. And I know river sampling is a dirty word, but there is a difference between people on a panel and people decide who do not want to be on a panel. I actually see or hear more and more companies trying to find people outside of the regular panels to get other, other people to answer the surveys and that has been really successful because they control the process a lot better. They control the, the whole flow from somebody entering a survey and answering the survey. Yeah. So we do sourcing on social media for most of our research and the challenge is it's costly and time intensive, right? So, you know, you can't just get, I can place a big Facebook ad, but it takes a while to get that, you know, propagated through their network and then yep. et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, the end of the day, because research needs insights fast, we do have to deal with private communities that are set up for research. The other way that is very common, in fact, I believe it's over 80% of sample is sourced through um, paywalls. So thinking about like an, a free to play app, maybe it's a card game. You and I are, you know, you take all of my money. So the way that I refill fill my coffer is by completing a survey, right? Mm-hmm. In which case we really have to think about like in that transaction that's happening, we really have to think about the motivation of the participant to actually care enough to, they have some level of real incentive as opposed to just click through so they can get back into the game. Yeah, that is one. And I also still strongly believe that if we say, or if panel providers are saying, join our panel and, and you can influence decisions, that's true, but they never see it. Right. There's no round tripping. Yeah, and I know that's a, a difficult thing because you're working on a customer working on specific projects with brands and it's, it's protected. But to give them something back to show them what impact they are making, that will help with the value proposition to understand what motivates them, what motivates them in life. Like, are they 
do they want to plant trees with every survey they take? Like, I, I actually believe there are a lot more other incentives for people to take surveys than to get their 20 cents, 50 cents or a dollar for 20 to 30 minutes of their time. Right. And so what do you, what do you see right now as the, if you had to guess, what do you think the median CPI is? The cost per complete, I think that should be around five dollars. Because you can, I was. It's funny. I was just talking with someone today. They're paying thirty-three cents for a Gen Pop participant. There are different price points and and different qualities. I remember uh, Case the Young, former CEO of uh, of SSI, said like this is this defeats all economic lessons that I've learned in my life. If demand is high and supply is low, prices should go up. But when it comes down to the cost per complete, it's actually moving in a different direction. It's <laughs> crazy. It's so crazy. It's going to correct. It has to correct. I mean, so. That, I really and that. it also makes it more difficult for the, for the regular panel providers to, to give people a true value for their time in terms of organization. What do you think is the is the root cause of the sample quality issue. I know that like survey designs are one thing, but participant fraud or bad actors or what have you is, is another thing entirely. What are you seeing is, is really the root cause? Is it the economic model? I don't know. If, if I'm being asked 20 minutes of my time for a 20 minute survey and of, of questions that I've already answered, I'm not taking this very seriously. I'm not giving this my proper attention. And that's kind of repeating what I, what I said earlier, but why would I care? What's in it for yeah. me? Right. And especially among one of the, I've been doing a lot of research on Gen Z and they have this concept of fair trade reciprocity where, you know, they, if they can make a certain amount of money in a gig economy driving for Uber Eats, you know, what sort of compensation are they going to get if they participate in a survey or in a focus group, right? And so there is definitely, especially among I'm seeing this in the younger generation, a big gap in terms of how much they can actually earn for their time relative to what they could earn in other venues. I don't think the economic model does not lend for it to increase incentives to that amount. So therefore it's gotta be it's gotta be a better better value proposition and it's gotta and it already gets better automatically if you have shorter surveys, not asking questions that you should already know. We've talked a lot about kind of issues inside of the space. I, I do want to like frame this out for everybody that Mark and I are very bullish on market research. <laughs> it's it's our it's our career, and we love the space, right? Yes. You know, these are just core challenges that are built up, and we're using this venue as an opportunity to be able to help educate the um, the market. With at the end of the day, hopefully, some effective change. I was talking with Kristen Luck today about. CPIs, the falling price of CPIs. And she was telling me, that she reminded me, she goes, you know, back in even 2005, we were paying $13 for a complete, right? And, and now you're sub a dollar. It is interesting. And yet the, the demand side of things has just like completely blown up. It's, it's unbelievable. Uh, and the valuations against companies, the sample companies has really expanded as well. She thinks yeah. that one of the big problems, and Kristen, you're going to hate me for, for calling you out on this, but like is as private equity and venture capitalists have become very interested in the space and heavily investing in it, they're looking at improving gross margin and, and sample is such a material cost for research that, you know, there's a lot of pressure for CEOs to 
and operators to really try to maximize their margin there, which really squeezes out the participant incentive. Yeah, I think it's the last it's the last place where you should start squeezing because it, it's the heart of everything. There's our pull quote for the episode. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have people motivated to participate in surveys, you have no insights industry anymore. Let's shift gears. Let's let's talk a little bit from a forward-looking perspective. You're of course involved in in the whole like research technology or res tech space. What do you see as a trend in consumer insights moving into 2022 and beyond? I'd like to change that a little bit and I like to talk about the opportunities. I really hope that some of these technologies that are around are being utilized to improve the experience, to keep the people that are willing to take surveys happy and actually get more people wanting to take surveys. So look at behavioral data, passive data collection, if and only if you have a very transparent and honest value proposition and value exchange for the data that you're collecting and obviously adhering to all privacy and what have you. I really think that technology has been around for a long, 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 long time. It is super interesting. It has so many different uses and it really reduces the number of questions that you need to ask somebody. And instead, you can automate things if you are looking at somebody's behavior, uh, what they're doing on their phone, what they're looking for, what apps they're using. If you also uh, look at location data, you can look at lapsed users, uh, change users. You can set up automated triggers for short surveys that are being triggered based on behavior in a way that could be somewhat scary. But if you educate the people on what is going to happen, then they may see it as a positive because it is more relevant to them rather than saying like, no, I haven't been to Burger King last, last week. I already told you or whatever. We know if somebody has visited to visit the Burger King or McDonald's or what have you. So let's use that and figure out the why and focus on that. And I think many of the research processes, the big ones would first have like a, a focus group and then some in-depth interviews and then a quantitative survey. I actually think that there would be a trend where this is reversed. So you, you first collect data that you don't need to ask. You can observe it, you can have it. You create triggers that you find interesting. You fire off a quick survey, which is quant, and then you wanna go deep and get a couple of people for an IDI or have them do video interview or whatever it may be. So that is something that I really hope is gonna, is gonna trend. Another thing is DIY. And I often hear the phrase democratizing data, um, I think that's great, but I think democracy only works with good education. And I think often with the DIY tools out there, education is not always the best. I'm thinking about here about, well, if we wanna expand our user base, we wanna extend our potential buyers, we have to go beyond the primary inside users and that group needs education. And I don't often see that happen. And it could actually damage the reputation of the industry if people are making the wrong decisions because they've executed their research wrong because they don't really know what they're doing. I'm not blaming them for them. Right. So education amongst DIY, I think is important. 
what you mentioned earlier, uh, having more conversational style interaction engagement uh, between brands, MR and their users. And another interesting thing is, um, is the use of AI, which can be used to predict behavior, but it's at the same time, I also think it's a little bit scary. Uh, to give you an example, um, a Dutch sort of late night show host once did a, a test with, with YouTube. He bought a brand new laptop, created a brand new account with a brand new email and no association to whatever what he did. And he started looking, um, he, he searched for COVID vaccination, just, just very, very generic. And then he got to a video where the vaccine is being explained. And then in your list, what what's next, you see something else. And within, I think within five steps, he was massively deep into conspiracy. And the only videos that were suggested to him are conspiracy videos. And that's all done by the AI. So if you apply that to, to a user, and if you apply that to where we may be going in the near future, thinking about a metaverse, if we see somebody drinks a lot of Coca-Cola because we see that they buy it like 10 bottles a week, if we then are trying to, to market or to offer this person products that he's likely to buy. So imagine walking into his personal supermarket, he will probably only see bad food and he will not see fresh produce or whatever. It's kind of scary if we apply AI to maximize profit. And I also think it takes away our humanity. And I'm also very curious if then we apply similar algorithms to, to see somebody's behavior, then what? The algorithm is going to confirm the algorithm? Like it's, it's crazy. I think we should never ever forget the human element of surprise of something that is, that is out of their initial scope. I think um, if you look at the, the music streaming services like Spotify and, and Tidal that create daily mixes for you, um, which I really enjoy, I discover a lot of new music, which I otherwise would never have found. I think AI can be applied and it can have a lot of benefits, but it's also quite scary that we should not teach AIs to maximize profit from our poor from the poor people, from the poor buyers that we sometimes are, if we are blinded by only a limited set of choices that we are already likely to buy. That's super powerful. Yeah. It's a big problem, the whole framework of, you know, attention, because as, as soon as that becomes the gauge for success, then I want to talk about what you want to talk about, right? Which is not an accurate frame for representing truth. And that's a trick or the, the trap, I should say, that we yeah. oftentimes fall into. I was, I teach an MBA course and part of the course is on social media. And so of course, TikTok comes up as the fastest growing social media platform. And I have everybody utilize the platform for one day uh, and then write a, a real short brief on it. And inevitably there's the subset of participants who are like everything that it's just, a, it's basically, you know, porn is how they frame it. And I yeah. said, what do you... <laughs> <laughs> you know, they're unsophisticated. And so they don't understand that if they keep, you know, engaging with a certain type of content, then that certain type of content is going to be the content that you're going to continually be fed. So that's scary. That is. It is. All right. I really appreciate you taking time with me today. If somebody wants to get in contact with you, Mark, how would they do that? 
they can find me on LinkedIn. I think there are two Mark Slobos actually. There are, apparently there are four in the world. I've reached out to them. They do not want anything to do with me. Um, <laughs> on, on, on LinkedIn, it's the guy with the beard. Um, or you can contact me at mark at lighthouseconsulting.io. Perfect. And I'll include your contact information in the show notes. Everybody, I hope you had a great day. Mark, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Likewise, thank you so much for having me. I had a great time.